For several weeks now, we've been looking at the parables that Jesus told, and we are actually in our last parable, although we will not finish it tonight. But uh, last week, we began looking at the last parable that we're going to be discussing. We normally call it the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. And we remember that it is the third parable in a trilogy of parables taught by Jesus because of this situation. In Luke chapter 15, beginning in verses 1 and 2, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners, that's in quotes in my Bible, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus then goes on to tell the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd who had a hundred sheep and he gets back to the, to the pen and he realizes that one of them is gone and he leaves the 99 and he goes out and he searches until he finds the one that was lost and brings it back and has a celebration. And then the parable of the woman who had the 10 coins, possibly 10 coins that were put on a, a wedding, uh, headdress. Uh, when she got married and one of those coins comes up missing and she lights a lamp and she sweeps the whole house until she is able to find the coin that she, that she lost. And she tells all her friends, you know, rejoice with me because I have found the coin. And last week we began looking at the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. We're going to go ahead. I know I'm not senile. I know we read it last week, but we're going to read it again. In verse 11 of chapter 15, it says, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a famine in that whole country and began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to to the field to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. But his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, 
You killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Last week, we looked at this parable from the perspective of the lost son. He received his inheritance. Now, one thing I tell you, you know, every time I read this, I get a little something a little different. And as I was preparing for tonight's lesson, I saw something a little different that we probably should have brought up last week. So we're going to do it. I always kind of got the idea that the man said, the boy said, the son said, give me my inheritance. He got it and he left. That's not what it says. It says not long after that. It wasn't immediately. And I wonder if when the son asked for his inheritance, if at that point his intention was to take everything and leave the house and squander it. Or if it was the fact that now that he had it and he was around the house and he realized that he had it, that slowly that temptation began to draw him out of the house and make him kind of leave. It reminds me a little bit more of the parable of the sower. Remember that one? Where the sower went out and spread the seed and the one fell on the rocky soil and it sprang up quickly. But then when the sun came because it had no root, it withered and died. Or the part of that parable where it says that some of the seed fell on the thorny ground. And it grew up and it was doing fine. But then all the thorns and the weeds came in, the, the, the pressures of this life, Jesus says it was, and choked it out. But whatever the case, he was, he was there for a little while. He didn't just take the money and run. Kind of like I'd always envisioned it. And so we were th- I, w- I wanted to think about that. Now notice again the condition while he was away. What the father said about him. He was dead and he was lost. Tonight we're going to look at the response of the father or the parable of the forgiving father. We, we changed the name. Same parable, change the name. Okay? Reminder that this parable is not about alien sinners out there who have never come to know Christ, who have never come to know God. This parable is about a son who was a child of the father who had received his inheritance. One of us, not talking about those folks out there, talking about us. The first point I wanted us to see is that the father let him go. Now, this kind of goes back to last week when we talked about free will. But again, we need to notice that unlike the shepherd and unlike the woman, there was no searching. There was no hunting. There was no following after the son, to get him back. And again, I believe that this has to do with the rebellious nature of the son. You see, the sheep and the coin didn't decide to be lost. Now, we know the coin didn't decide to be lost. It's an inanimate object. The coin didn't, although, you know, we have all kinds of cartoons now and stuff, but, you know, even with special effects, the coin did not say, I think I'm going to get lost and jump off the counter and roll under the table or wherever it was. You know, the coin didn't decide to be lost. And I don't think the sheep decided to be lost. Sheep are not rebellious creatures. They're just dumb creatures. 
And my guess is that when it was time and he was gathering the sheep and he was herding them towards the thing, I don't believe what the sheep said, hid out behind the tree and said, I ain't going back. Well, I get out here by myself. I'm not going back. I think he was probably out grazing, had his head down, wasn't paying any attention and looked up and all of a sudden, uh uh-oh, I'm alone. But the son, the son purposefully and intentionally left the father. He was intentionally rebellious. One thing I want to throw in here, and I didn't know where to throw it in because I didn't know where it really fit. But I think this parable is important for parents who have children who have turned away from God. And I think it's important because I think sometimes maybe as parents we feel a tremendous amount of guilt. It must be my fault. I must have done something. I must not have brought them up. You know, that's from my background, that goes back to, I think, a misuse of that Proverbs that says, raise up a child in the way of the Lord, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. I was talking with the kids. We're in Proverbs on Wednesday nights. And I said, are there such things as absolute promises and general promises? You see, I don't believe that Proverbs is an absolute promise. I don't believe that what God is saying in that Proverbs is that if you raise your children right, they're all going to remain faithful. And if you have one that, you know, that goes away from God, it's all your fault. You didn't raise them right. No, I don't think so. I think generally, generally, if we raise our children right, they'll be faithful. But there's exceptions. We know that's not true. We've seen children grow up in the same house with the same parents, with the same foundation. And some remain faithful and others don't. It reminds me a little bit of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 after he just talked about don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to, you know, don't worry about those things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you. What are all these things? Well, he was talking about food and water and clothes and all those kind of material things. Is that an absolute promise or a general promise? It's not an absolute promise because you and I have faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world who are starving. They are seeking first the kingdom of God and they are starving. It's a general promise. Generally, if we follow God things will, in God's way, things will go well for us. But that's not absolute. People were persecuted. The early church faced all kinds of economic and social distress because of following God. And so my point here is, In this parable, who does the father represent? Go ahead, it's audience participation. God. Can there be any more perfect parent than God? 
go like this. No. And yet, he lost one of his sons. He came back, but we'll get to that in a minute, but he lost him. He rebelled. He said, I don't want any of this anymore. And he went off. And he was dead. And he was lost. So, I think sometimes, parents, we may feel too much guilt. Not needed guilt. Because we can do everything in the world for our children, spiritually. And there comes a point in time where they can decide on their own that they want to rebel against God and there's nothing we can do about it. Because this son had everything provided by his father. And he rebelled. And he went away. I was talking to the teens when, when our junior high, when some of our sixth graders moved up to junior high and we were, we were beginning to study, I, I was telling them that, you know, I have kind of a certain way that, that, that we study in the, in the youth classes. And that's pretty much taking the Bible and studying the Bible. And I told them this. I said, the best way to study the Bible is to study the Bible. Very good. One of them. Yes. Okay, it's a success. The best way to study the Bible is to study the Bible. I had a professor at Harding who once said, the Bible is its own best commentary. Well, I like that. I had another one that said, this doesn't apply in this case, but if you don't understand the verse you're reading, read the one above it and read the one underneath it. Well, that'll probably help you out a little bit. But you know, when we were in the book of Hebrews, or when we were, <laughs> back a while ago when we were still in the book of Hebrews, there were a couple passages that give us a little difficulty. But in light of this parable, to me, that makes a little more sense. You remember when we were in Hebrews chapter 6, we had this verse beginning of verse 4, these verses. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Now, there's a whole lot of clauses in there. But I'm going to take the clauses out. It is impossible if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. You see, those verses in and of themselves, a little, little difficult maybe to understand. And then a few weeks ago, we were in chapter 10. And we saw these verses. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anybody who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him? And who has insulted the Spirit of grace? 
For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I think this parable kind of helps explain those verses. Because you see, if we deliberately and intentionally and rebelliously turn away from God, And leave him. What else is God supposed to do? What what else can he do? He's given you everything. He sent his son to die for you. The blood of Jesus, his son, has cleansed you from your sins. And if you intentionally, deliberately, and rebelliously turn your back on that, there's nothing left. There's nothing more God can do. And that's why I believe that the father did not run after the son. There was nothing more the father could do. If what he had given to the son was not enough to keep him there and keep him on the straight and narrow, there was nothing else the father could do. I guess he could have roped him, chained him up. Now, I guess God could make us follow him, make us do his will. But that's not how God operates. There are no more options. All he can do is let us go. Maybe some of you as parents have been in a similar similar situation with your children. You've begged and you've pleaded and you've tried. and But, you know, there comes a point in time. Where there's not much more we can do. Which leads us though to the second point. And the second point is that the father was watching. Although he let him go. He was watching and waiting and hoping. Now those verses we looked at in Hebrews. They do not say. That we can ever get so far away from God. That if we come to our senses and repent, we can't come back. That's not what those verses in Hebrews are saying. Those verses in Hebrews are saying, as long as I'm going to continue to be stubborn and obstinate and rebellious. Nothing can be done. But like the son who came to his senses. And repented and came back. We can never get too far away from God that he will not take us back. We can't do anything so horrible. We can't go so far away that if we repent and we want to come back to him, that he will not take us back. God may be disappointed. He may be hurt. He may even be angry. But he's watching and he's waiting. There's that verse, you remember, in Romans that says, uh, neither, and I'm not going to get it all right, I should have probably read it before, you know, but neither life and death and, you know, nothing can separate. Here's the key part. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, we can separate ourselves if we choose to. We can separate ourselves from the, 
from the benefits of the love of God. But that still doesn't separate us from the love of God. God is patient, wanting all men to come to repentance. Even when we are rebellious against him, he loves us. You see, that goes all the way back to the whole premise to begin with. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. We were rebellious, all of us. But it was God's love that sent his son to die for us. This shows, I believe, the importance of a foundation laid for our children and others. They may wander off. They may be rebellious. They may grieve us. But we hope and we pray that they will return to the foundation that was laid. You know, I've worked with young people essentially my whole life. And I've seen some of them go way off. And I hope and I pray and I think, but I know what I taught them. I know what they heard here. I know what their parents taught them. And I pray and I hope that at some point they will come to their senses and they will say, you know what? I need to go back. I need to go back. This is more for next week's lesson, but we need to be the kind of people who will have them back. Who will have them back. I imagine this is my imagery of the story. I'm sure they didn't have porches and porch swings back in Jesus' day. But I just imagine the old man, the father, sitting on the porch in his rocking chair day after day after day. Looking down the road, hoping and praying that one day he would see his son come down that road. God is like that with us, not wanting that anyone should perish, but that all come to repentance. That's alien sinners, and that's those who have rebelled against him. He's still watching. Brings us to the third point. I love this. This is my favorite part of the whole story. The father ran. Again, the image. The father's sitting on the porch. And he looks out and he sees the silhouette of somebody coming down the road. Like he's probably seen a thousand times before since the son left. Probably didn't think much of it. But as the son got closer. Something about it. Notice what it says. He was still far off. I don't know if it was something about his gait. The way he walked. People have a certain gait. You can tell kind of who they are just by watching them walk. I don't know what it was. But something told him, that's my son. And notice that he didn't stand there. With arms folded, waiting for him to walk up. He didn't go in the house and make the son deal with the servant first. It says he ran. 
You know, old men run funny. I know. But the father took off. Probably the strongest his legs had felt in years. And he runs to meet the son. Here's the thing. God won't run after you. But he will run to you. He didn't run after the son. Wasn't anything to do. If the son was determined to rebel. But when the son started back, the father ran to him. James chapter 4 and verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a wonderful thought. God running to us. How does that make you feel? That God would run to you to get you back. Fourth point is the father forgave completely. The son doesn't even get through his speech. He only gets halfway through his speech. And the father stops him. He calls the servants. He says, go get the best robe. Go get a ring. Go get the sandals. And get the fattened calf. We're going to have a feast. I don't know what all of those things mean, but, but we've studied enough about old old time, you know, traditions and, and, and things like that. And the ring probably had to do with the family seal. I'm giving him the ring, the family seal, so that he knows that he is part of the family. He welcomed him back completely, totally, fully, unconditionally, and restores him to full son Status. Was that necessary? Could the father not have accepted the son's offer to come back as a servant? Wouldn't that have been enough? Wouldn't that have satisfied the older brother that we'll talk about next time? Wouldn't that have been logical? You know, the son had thought this through, hadn't he? I have blown it. I don't deserve to go back and be a son anymore. But if I could just go back and just be a a servant and get servant's wages and get taken care of like my daddy takes care of the servants, I'll be a whole lot better off than I am with the pigs. It reminds us a little bit, remember, of the parable of the workers in the field. The 11th hour workers. When they got paid the same as the ones who'd been working all day long. And the ones who'd been working all day long were like, wait a minute. That's not fair. If you remember when we studied that parable, the main point of that parable is, it ain't fair. God's not fair. God's better than fair. If God was fair, (laughs) that picture, remember, sinners in the hands of the angry God would say, yeah, if God was fair. God's not fair. God's love is not logical. 
God's love is not just satisfactory. It's beyond logic. It's beyond fairness. It's beyond mere satisfaction. You know, we know that verse in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. We love that verse. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. You know, but you know that really starts in the verses above it. I pray, Paul speaking, that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I hope someday you can grasp how deep and wide and long God's love is for you. That you can come to the knowledge of the, of, of, of the love of God that surpasses all knowledge. You see, we love. We love. We even try our hardest to love like God loves. But we fail miserably. Because our love is based in logic a lot of times. Our love is based in fairness. Our love is based in what we think ought to be right and God's isn't. None of it's fair. What God has done for us. John tells us how great is the Father's love, is the love the Father has lavished on us That we should be called children of God. In my translation, there's an exclamation point there. So I'm going to read it like there's an exclamation point there. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Another exclamation point. Children of God. Access to indescribable inheritance. All because of God's amazing love for us. He let him go. But he was watching and waiting. And when he saw him, he ran to him. And when he got to him, he forgave him unconditionally. Didn't put him on probation, did he? He didn't say, okay, yeah, you know, that servant thing, that sounds pretty good. We'll try that out for about six months. If you do all right with the servant thing, and then we'll see if maybe we can promote you to head servant. And then if you do all right with head servant thing, maybe we'll promote you to, you know, sub-son. I don't know. And then if that works out, maybe, maybe after years, you can get back into my full good graces. You see, that's what the older son thought should happen. And sometimes that's the way we treat people. But that's not the way God treats people. 
forgave him fully. If you've drifted away from God, if you've been rebellious to God, he's waiting. He's watching. And he will run to you as soon as you decide to come back. And it may be that this doesn't strike a chord with you. It may be that you feel like, well, I've never left. I've never been rebellious. I've never had to have God, you know, run to meet me. I've always been with him. Then come back next week. Because that lesson's for you. But you know, even if you feel that way, you know those who have. And maybe you could be the person to reach them. Maybe you could be the person to help them come to their senses. To help bring them back to God. Either way, it is never, ever a waste of time to be reminded of God's immense love for us. And that we are his children. If you're here this evening and we help encourage you anyway, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas. 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.